Hello and welcome to the History Teacher Podcast and to part two of our special on the Harrogate Terriers, all in preparation for our journey to the Western Front this week. We've already talked about recruitment and training and the Battle of the Somme in 1916, but this time we discuss the Harrogate Terriers' experience around the hugely important town of Ypres. If you've ever been to Ypres, or Wipers as the soldiers called it, then you've probably visited Tyne Cot and Essex Farm Cemeteries. You'll have been to Tyne Cot because it's the largest Commonwealth cemetery in the whole world and is located at the scene of one of the most famous battles in the history of our country, Passchendaele. You may have been to Essex Farm because it's thought to be the place that the Canadian Army doctor called John McRae wrote the famous poem In Flanders Fields, which begins In Flanders Fields, the poppies blow, which became famous when it was published and this poem along with the fact that poppies were a common sight on the Western Front, hence why McRae wrote that line, which led to people wearing poppies for Remembrance Sunday. Anyway, by coincidence, two of the most often visited places in Ypres, and indeed on the whole Western Front, are also places that our very own Harrogate Terriers spent significant time. And so, back we go to the illuminated interview with John Sheehan, author of the Harrogate Terriers, as he tells us more about the experiences of the soldiers from our neck of the woods. You know the drill. Get your history pants on, make yourself comfortable, and let's get stuck in. Uh, on um, another one of the days, on the last day, we're going to visit Tyne Cot, which is a, a, another site that I've been to many times, and it, it no matter how many times the students or people go there, with me anyway, it always makes the hair stand up on, on the end of my arms. So. Yeah, it does. Um, how does the how does Tyne Cot relate to the Harrogate Terriers? Right, well, in two ways really. Firstly, because it's very close to a, a very important battle uh, that the Harrogate Terriers fought in October 1917 during the Third Battle of Ypres, which is sometimes called the Battle of Passchendaele. Um, and you can see the battlefield from the wall of Tyne Cot Cemetery. So as you kind of come round, if you you know, scout the coach. Yeah. Um, walk down the kind of paved part where you can mm. hear the names of all the soldiers. Yeah. Yeah. And then yeah. you get to, just before you get to the visitor centre, I always duck under the barrier and turn left. So I'm right. cheeky, I don't go to the visitor centre. <laughs> right. Um, but if you walk along there and you get to the wall of the cemetery, just where it starts, mm-hmm. probably about 20 yards along, if you stand on the wall and you look straight out, uh, basically ahead of you, so the slope is going up from left to right, about half a mile away in the distance, you are looking at the battlefield where the 5th Battalion of the West Yorkshire Regiment, the Harrogate Terriers, attacked at 5.20am on the 10th of October so, 1917. So just to get my bearings, if you're looking yeah. down the cemetery, it's yeah. two, It's uh, basically it's at three o'clock you'd be looking towards. If you look, if you're yeah, stood, if you were, yeah, if you happen exactly. to be stood on, st- uh, stood stood just at the, um, under the the cross, you would look straight to your right. Exactly so. So right. Yes, that's right. Um, but you wouldn't be able to see it. There's a tree between you and the. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So but here at the um, cross, you yeah. walk to the wall. Yeah. And then, and then if you carry on walking for half a mile, so the ground dips and then it, it comes up again. And right. when it comes up again, that's Bellevue, that's Bellevue Spur, and that's what they were attacking, and that's where all the German machine guns were on the 10th of October. Mm. Um, so they attacked from up that hill, um, and as, as you know from the book, mm. um, the, the first 
were okay, although they were all exhausted because they'd slept for about two days and they'd waded through mud and horrors to get into the front line. Mm. But as soon as they got through the stream at the bottom and started making their way up the hill, they started to be mowed down by machine guns. Mm. And that was probably, for me, the saddest day mm. um, for the 5th, 5th Battalion because they actually got further in the Battle of Passchendaele than any of the soldiers on the right or left. But because... The, um, the soldiers on the right and the left hadn't got as far, they had to fall back so they yeah. actually had to abandon ground that they'd won um, at great cost and there are some real uh, tragic stories as well um, I guess I guess the students are probably thinking why did they have to give, what, what did it make any difference that the others didn't get as far yeah well if um, the whole idea in those days was that an army had to advance all together so that the front line was a straight line because if one part of the army gets further ahead than the others, then that part that's got further is exposed not only to fire in front, but fire from both sides on the flanks as well. Mm. So basically they'll all be killed. So you have to all go together at an even pace. And if anybody gets ahead, then they have to wait or drop back. Mm. Um, I'm no expert in military tactics, but that's a very important in the first world war and yeah. it's why the trenches were all relatively straight all the way from the sea to Switzerland yeah well yeah, yeah I guess always at risk of being cut off if you yeah. if you're sticking out a little bit it just creates a bit a bit of a um, attack, attack in the bits behind you to cut you off and end up with you being surrounded so um, so you yeah. were you were going before I asked that question because I, I I thought hold on a minute they'll probably be thinking that was uh, you were telling us some of the stories of the soldiers yeah, who attacked gonna, on that particular day. Yeah, I was going to tell you about... Um, I'll tell you about Norrie Beach, if you don't mind. Norman Beach. Yeah. Who, um, he was a, a gent outfitter for Harrogate. And he joined up um, when war broke out um, with his mate, James Atkinson. Um, and in December 1915... Um, I'll tell you a bit more about this when we talk about Essex Farm, but the battalion was attacked with phosgene gas, and he and James Atkinson had actually got up into the gas in No Man's Land, taken a machine gun into No Man's Land without gas masks and fired machine guns towards the Germans. And there was some thought that they actually managed to stop a German attack by doing this. So he's hugely brave um, and became the battalion's machine gun expert. No surprise with that. Yeah. And then on the 9th of October... 1917, um, at the Battle of Polkapel, which is part of the Battle of Passchendaele. Um, Norrie was unfortunately killed. He was leading, by then he was an officer, he was made a, a lieutenant, and he was uh, leading his uh, platoon up the hill towards the uh, Bellevue Spur and was killed. His body was found in a shell hole by a member of the Second Wellington New Zealand Regiment the next day because it was the New Zealanders who took over um, from the Harrogate boys. His death was reported in the Harrogate Advertiser on the 3rd of November. Um, and there was a letter from Colonel Boosfield, who was then in charge of the battalion. Shall I, shall I read it out? Uh, yeah, by all means, do yeah, and I'll tell you we've, when we when we're stood in the uh, at the memorial, we've I've I've taken the picture uh, so that the, yeah. the the students can can look on his face whilst we're oh, we're trying to remember him. So yeah, yeah, please fire away. Okay, he said, 
Um, this is the Colonel speaking to uh, Norris' mum and dad. He says, my dear Mr and Mrs Beach, I'm sorrier than I can possibly tell you to hear that there is now no doubt that your poor boy Norman was killed on the 9th of October. I had hoped against hope that it would turn out they'd been taken out of the battle alive, but apparently it was not to be. And it only remains for me to tend to you my heartfelt sympathy and your great sorrow. I was wounded myself earlier in the day on the night, and therefore I have no first-hand information of what happened. I know, however, that I have lost one more first-rate officer. I had a very great regard for your boy, and he had made a, a really first-rate officer, and he had the confidence and affection of his men to a very marked degree, and that is everything. It was a sad thing for the battalion, though it is some consolation to know that the battalion did simply splendidly and gained a very deep, great deal of praise for the determined way in which they fought against heavy odds. But your boy played his full share, I know full well. He was full of pluck and quiet courage, and we in the battalion will all feel his loss very keenly. I hope the knowledge that he was a particular fine career in rising from the ranks and winning his decorations so gallantly, that was the one... Um, in 1915 that I was talking about mm. and that he did his duty out there more than well for so many months will prove some small consolation to you in your sorrow will you please, uh, will you please accept again my most sincere sympathy for yourself and the rest of your family and his poor fiance misfortune believe me yours very sincerely H.D. Boothfield Lieutenant Colonel West Yorkshire's and he said P.S. if you would care for me to come and see you I would be very glad Mm, it's really heartfelt, isn't it? You can. Yeah. It's like so, sometimes you, you feel like maybe officers would write these letters, because they feel they they have to and they have to write a many to the quite a, a lot to to the soldiers of other families of the soldiers. But that one really sounds like, he really meant every word of that. Um, um, so I'm, I, something's just pinged into my mind, which may be incorrect, but luckily yeah, I'm yeah. speaking to the author. <laughs> um, is it? Am I right in saying that that attack in which they did so well and and had to fall back, um, because of the the uh, troops fighting either side of them, was the first time that they were in the front line, first wave yeah. of a major attack in that's in the war? That, that's correct. Yeah. Um, they So I, I suppose also students are probably, if it's anything like, like it is today in Harrogate anyway, they'll be studying Tynecott, looking around and seeing it's, a, it's like probably wonderfully sunny and there's grass everywhere. What would they have seen if they looked, if they, if they stood and looked where, where, we've, where we're going to tell them to look in the direction of, of where uh, Bellevue Spur is? What would they have seen on that day when they, they, they okay. went and attacked? Well, what, what, what I'm going to do is read, if I, I might, a little section from one of the uh, a book that was written about, about um, Passchendaele mm. uh, a couple of years after by a Yorkshire soldier who fought with the 5th Battalion. Right, OK. And this is a really good description. Now, I hope you've uh, all had your breakfast, anybody listening <laughs> The billets were shell holes, full of familiar Flanders mud. The whole area was crowded with troops and littered with the debris of battle. 
all trace of roads or houses had entirely disappeared. Labour battalions were engaged in building a straight plank road across the mud, and thousands of men were making tracks up to the gun, uh, gun positions and dumps on either side of the main plank road, which was the only practicable method of communication on a front of nearly two kilometres. Hundreds of mules carrying ammunition and rations struggled forward on either side of the plank road. Transport wagons and lorries went forward as far as possible on the planks, but every half hour there was some lorry or general service wagon which slipped into the mud and caused an obstruction. If it was a GS wagon which had come to grief, it was lifted again onto the planks. In the case of a loaded motor lorry, this couldn't be done. So the lorry was tipped off the planks into the mud and the long line of traffic moved on again. On either side of the plank road, there were dozens of derelict motor lorries, thousands of shells, hundreds of dead horses and mules, all of them rapidly sinking in the mud. The enemy shelled the road constantly and every hit, and there were many, resulted in casualties, but the road was quickly repaired and the traffic moved on. Near Kansas Cross, so that's really what you're looking at from mm. time card, he says there was a good landmark which went by the name of the Incinerated Man. A 5.9 German shell had struck a lorry carrying petrol and set it ablaze. The driver had been hit at the wheel and had then been burnt to death. His skeleton remained, however, still sitting at the driving seat and leaning on the steering wheel of the lorry. The stream of traffic poured down the plank road past this ghastly landmark and for two or three weeks no one troubled to move it. Wow. I, I think that's the best description. Yeah. Actually, just as they get they're getting to the battlefield, that that's what it was like. Um, yeah. the battlefield is porridgey mud. You couldn't really walk at all. You had to wade, you were up to your knees, and if you fell over you were likely not to be able to get up again. Yeah. Um, I mean, men just disappeared in it, didn't they? They, they, if they, if they fell into a shell hole. Yeah, I looked at the, I looked in the sources at the back of your book, uh, just earlier on today, and it's just, yeah. it must have taken hours and hours and hours to go to to go through all of those different sources of information to to write this book. Yeah, thousands, um, thousands of hours. Um, it was. Because I, I I did history at university, probably like yourself. Yeah, yeah. And um, I've always had a love of history, and I'm now a lawyer, for better or worse. But there's a lot of similarity between history and the law, in that you you have to look at all the sources or find the sources, and then you study them all, and then decide which one of them is you know what, what their relative credibility is, mm. and their reliability is, and obviously the closer to the time the source is, sometimes the more useful it is. Mm. especially if people don't tend to know about them now. So a lot of stuff that I've got in the book is the first time that it's really uh, come out recently, and it's, some of it supports the general view of what the First World War was like, but some of it surprisingly doesn't. Mm. Some of it actually talks about the soldiers having a really good time, yeah. you know, playing football, rugby. Mm. Uh, you go into Poplar Gate, but if you go there, they used to go to the estaminets there, and they used to have uh, egg and chips, Mm. with uh, a nice glass of red wine and then all the ladies would appear from the town and some of the soldiers would go off with the ladies mm. and then they'd have to be seen by the doctor. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> Did you say that was in Poparinge? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. We are going to go there very briefly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we, we won't be going off to the, with the ladies of the town, though, I hope. No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, 
but that was, um, yeah, there were very positive times as well as the negative times. And yeah. the, 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 they, they had a lot of camaraderie and fellowship as well. So they, yeah. they, they enjoyed themselves when they could. Yeah, well, that's one of the, we're, we're, the students will be asked to produce some sort of work uh, whilst they're out there that they're going to be able to choose what they produce themselves. But we're going to ask them a question about um, whether the stereotype of the First World War is accurate. And we're going to I'm going to try and gauge the stereotype by going and asking members of staff who aren't coming on the trip. I'm going to do a bit of word association and sort of say several things and then say First World War and see what comes out of, of their mouths. And um, that, that'll that be in the, the next podcast on this topic after the Battlefields trip when we come back. Um, so, yeah, that that's that's really useful information that it's, it's not all trenches and mud and that sort of thing. Exactly. So the, the, f- you, I, I'm, the talk I'm giving in June is exactly on this. Have you read Dan Todman's book Wait, on what? the Great War? No. Um, it's called Great War um, Myths and Reality, and it's exactly what you're talking about. Right, um, I'd have to it, get that one then. Yeah, yeah, it's not all death and destruction. Yeah. Um, and only, you know, most of them came back. Mm, yeah, and, yeah, and you, you actually say that at the end of your book about the yeah. uh, the casualty figures and that sort of thing, which I probably uh, meant speak about to the students on, on just before we head back or on the ferry on the way, way back. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, mean, I, I would have to break it to my wife, though, because I've got so many books from going to the... I, I always oh, come back with at least... There's, there's, honestly, the shelf in the bedroom is, is, is bowing already. I went to it to get some more books off to read and... Anyway, um, the the last stop of our trip is yeah. Essex Farm, yeah. and uh, it's sort of we we sort of dipping around the chronology of their of the terrier's time at the front because uh, yeah, that's sure. one of their first stops. So, what what is significant about the Essex Farm area for the terriers? And also, I have a question myself. It's yeah. about Bridge Four. Is Bridge Four in the same place as the bridges over the canal now? Ah, good, good question. The answer to about Bridge Four is no. Right. Um, Bridge Four um, crossed the canal roughly where the Forty uh, Ninth Division Memorial. Brilliant. That is really useful is. because I always stand there and uh, at that memorial with a photograph of Bridge Four and say to the students, "This was here somewhere exactly. along this canal, and I'm not sure where." But now I am sure. So thank you very yeah, much. No, that that'll that's help. Where it is. Yeah. Right. So how? Why is Essex Farm so significant to the terriers? Okay. Well, um, when they first arrived in France in April 1915, what they did was um, they fought in the Battle of uh, Aubert Ridge, mm. um, but they were only playing a very sporting role there. So it was the first time. Um, but pretty soon after that, they were moved up to Ypres, um, up to the salient. And a salient is like a bow. Um, if you can imagine a bow and arrow, it's like the wooden bit of the bow that goes around the town. And the British were protecting Ypres. They didn't want the Germans to get it because the whole reason that the uh, British went to war was to protect Belgium. And it was the last bit of Belgium, really, the Germans could get. And that's why there was so much fighting going on there over the whole four years of the war. Anyway, the uh, 1st Fifth Battalion of the West Yorkshire Regiment, the Harrogate Har- Har- Terrier, turned up there in uh, July of 1915. And their job was just to stay in the trenches and prevent the Germans from breaking through. 
the reason they needed to do that was the second Battle of Ypres had just finished and the Germans had been very successful in pushing the, the, uh, the Allied line backwards. The job of the, uh, the Terriers is to hold it and not let it go any further backwards. And they spent six months almost solid in the trenches, the most shocking conditions. Um, people say that Passchendaele in 1917 was the worst conditions around Ypres, but in fact, people who were there say that um, October, November, December of 1915 were even worse because it rained solid and the, um, the earth around there has clay underneath it, so the water doesn't drain away, so all of the earth just turns to mush sort of porridgey slime. Mm. So if you dig into it, um, it fills with water, so you can't actually stand in it very long, which means your head pokes out the top, and that means that German snipers can shoot you unless you're crouching down the whole time. But you can't crouch down the whole time because you'd be pretty much underwater. So a lot of the terriers were shot in the front line. The trenches also started to collapse under the water, mm. um, which meant that if you wanted to get from one trench to another, you couldn't just walk as if you were sort of semi-underground. You had to come up, run across, and then jump down again. And of course, the German snipers on the higher ground, so they were a bit drier, could see you doing it, and they were waiting, and they'd, they'd mm. pop off a shot every time they saw somebody. So there were lots of yeah. shots. That's uh, I was going to say that's that's perhaps why then why a lot of the stories that we tell around Essex Farm and and some yeah. from the Menin Gate as well who were yeah. killed in this area are hit by snipers. Exactly, that's yeah. right. And they they were tended to be buried just behind the front line, um, on the other side of the canal from uh, Essex Farm, mm. and um, what happened was that their bodies um, kept being exposed again by shell fire. Uh, and Essex Farm Cemetery um, was used to rebury them right. on a quiet apart just by, by the uh, casualty clearing station, as you say. Yeah. The dressing station, I should say. Mm. Um, but Essex Farm had a really interesting role as well because now it's mainly a cemetery, cemetery and I think from about 1916 it was a proper dressing station. Mm. But it was also being on the, um, the kind of western, southwestern side of Bridge 4, it's where the soldiers would stop before they crossed the bridge into the salient, mm. into the really heavy fighting. Yeah. And soldiers coming out would leave their old Wellington. I love this story from your book, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Go on. They leave huge piles of Wellington um, that had been in the trenches with them for weeks and months, and the previous battalion and the one before that had been wearing the same Wellington. So the new soldiers coming in, would dive into this pile, sometimes head first, and we'll try and grab two Wellingtons that were about the right size for them. And mm. um, what that meant was you'd often get two right Wellingtons and two left ones where you couldn't get <laughs> quite the right size, but they were always absolutely soaking. So by the time that you actually got into the trenches, you were already soaked through. So there's no surprise that many of them got trench foot. Yeah, and now I suppose the students are probably thinking, what's trench foot? No, <laughs> a trench foot is basically when your feet die because yeah. they get so wet that the um, the blood doesn't circulate, mm. the, the the skin starts to rot, mm. um, and your feet turn black. Mm. I I go on. I always say to the I always say to the students. If you've ever laid in the bath for half an hour or an hour and your your feet exactly. and your, your hands start to go wrinkly, imagine if you just laid in the bath for a few days, what it would do to you, and. Uh, 
and that sure. helped them to understand it that way. But oh, yeah, that's a really good example. Yeah. You, know, you know, like you know, when we have a bath, we we get out and we've had enough. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> no, you couldn't. No. But the soldiers were blamed for getting trench foot themselves, and what the generals said was that they were issued with whale oil, and they had to put this whale oil on their feet before they put the Wellingtons on. And if they got trench foot, it's because they haven't done that well enough, so it was their own fault. So not only would they get trench foot and maybe lose a foot, uh, but they'd also get blamed for it, and so they, they would end up with a court martial as well. <laughs> Blow me neck. Oh. Yeah. All right, well... I mean, this has been absolutely fantastic, and I, I think we've talked for so long. I'll probably have to do this, this in a two-part, a pod, two-part podcast for oh, the students. No, do, do not apologise. This is this is. I'm I'm absolutely wrapped. I'm, uh, yeah, um, and I'm so I'm sure the students will be, and many of the parents probably hoping that they can come out and see some of these things too. And um, so finally, I guess before uh, we wrap up with uh, with this, what what are your favourite stories? Uh, about the terriers from your research? Okay. Um, I think the first one that... I, I think the one that affects me most is a sad one. Okay. Um, and it's a letter from a nurse to the parents of... Um, I'm just going to find it. Book. The parents of a soldier called Horace Reimer who um, lived in a... Well, his parents ran a hotel... Um, on the Ripon Road called the Dalton Hotel. Um, and on the 29th of July, 1916, Horace uh, was, um, well, he died of his wounds in a uh, hospital, an army hospital on the French coast. Um, he'd been hit just below the knee by some shrapnel, which is a bit of a bomb, a bit of a shell. Yeah. Um, after the explosion yeah. that gets get under your skin. Um he was a fine club cricketer, and he was one of the best batsmen at Harrogate Cricket Club, and he played for the Yorkshire Second Eleven, and so he was really good. And he was 17 when war was declared, um, and he joined up pretty pretty soon afterwards. So he lied about his age then? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And many mm. of them did. Um, I'll come on to another story in a minute, if that's OK. Of course, yeah. The, yeah, yeah. The letter um, from Sister Florence Reed. Um, to um, Horace's parents, um, I think is the most affecting letter that I've read in the whole of research. And it, it goes like this. It says, she says, your son was conscious up to 45 minutes before his death and talking about his cricket. And he kept asking me why I was doing the numerous treatments for him. And when I said, it's just to buck you up, he replied, I'm all right, sister. I don't want bucking up. And again, when he had the brandy, he said, I don't like this, but I'll take it if you think it'll do me good. He was looking forward to going to England, and he'd written to you to say so. The doctor was devoted to him and spent some time each day by his bedside. We have every treatment that is known to try and stimulate the boys here, but evidently the germs that had entered his system were far too strong for us to battle with, and the dear lad's heart just gave out. Sister Robertson and myself send our deepest sympathy with you all in your great sorrow. I cannot tell you how the death of these fine, strong young lads upsets us. This war is too terrible for words, and we feel so helpless when we have these awful germs to combat. All we can do is to make the poor men comfortable and try and battle against the dreadful things, sometimes with success, and again not, as in your dear boy's case, which makes us all feel so useless. 
Mm. Wow, another yeah. really hard hitting. That, that, that was before antibiotics, so if you've got a wound like that, mm. it wasn't just the soldiers that were in the battle, it was the nursing staff. Yeah. As well. And it really talks about, well, it really, really speaks to me of the, the character of. Um, yeah. Of the soldier to be, yeah. to say, no, 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 I'm all right. You know, don't, don't worry about me. Even, oh, yeah. even right up to that that point. And then you make an interesting point about the battles that the women were fighting because people often think, oh, well, the women, they they couldn't go out there, couldn't really go and join in. But they like if if I say to the to yeah. the students, can you imagine going from your normal civilian life, volunteering to go and be a nurse at the front, and then seeing men coming in with legs missing and bits of their face missing and screaming for their mothers? It would be utterly traumatic and heartbreaking Absolutely. as well. So they made their own sacrifices. Um, did. So you were going to tell us another story. Um, yeah, well, it... Um... It's a bit unclear about what happened, but it, it made me think of it uh, when we were talking about the those who joined up under age. Oh, yeah, because that's the theme of our trip um, about yeah. boy soldiers. Well, yeah, there's, there's a Harrogate boy called Alfred Dolby, um, and I'm pretty sure that he was 14 when he joined the Harrogate Terriers. He was probably uh, given a ride in Fred Kelly's car. Um, and um, even if the recruiting sergeant thought he was a bit young, would have signed him up, as long as he said uh, that he was 19. And Alfred um, arrived at the uh, Western Front in August of 1915. So he spent the whole of the second half of 1915 in the trenches um, around Ypres in the, the horrible mud. But he survived that and then went with the rest of the battalion to the Somme in the January of 1916, which they all thought was going to be a nice, quiet time, because at that point it was very quiet, and they had no idea that just as they were arriving, the plans were being settled by General uh, General Haig and General uh, Sir John French to attack the French, uh, the French army, sorry, the German army. <laughs> just there. And that actually where they were going to was going to be bang in the middle of the Battle of the Somme. So in the February, um, they were in Seafalwood um, and they were digging trenches and getting the, uh, the place ready. They were digging graves and all sorts of things because they knew that you know, large uh, numbers of soldiers were going to be there for so to fight battle, including them. Um, when something called a Meinenwerfer, which is a German um, bomb, uh, was launched from the German trenches just across the way in Seabell Village, mm. and it landed on a trench which was occupied by the Terriers, and it killed, I think, three of them, uh, stone dead and wounded another of the others. But one of those that was killed was Alfred Dorby. Um, now, it's not known what happened to his body, because he might have been blown completely to smithereens. Otherwise, if there was anything left, what his mates would have done was to shovel him into a, a sandbag and bury the sandbag. Mm. Um, but the truth is that now nobody knows uh, where his remains lie, and that's why his name is on the wall of uh, Tupal uh, Memorial. Um, so you'll be able to see that right. uh, when you go along with others. Um, but he's, uh, he played a very big part in the story, I think, because he was just so young. And what did you... Because I'll make sure that we uh, we find his name on the memorial. Was it Arthur Dolby? Alfred. Oh, Alfred. 
Alfred. Yeah. I'll look. Yeah. Is, is it is his stories in your book then? I'll I'll just find oh, it in yeah, there. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. D A L B Y. Just looking right. up. Okay. Um, and it was in the February. It was in a fairly quiet period because they were getting ready for the attack. So um, it's not kind of one of the kind of most exciting parts, as mm-hmm. it were. Yeah. Um, right. Okay. Well, we'll we'll certainly find that find that story. How old do you, do you think he was? Fourteen when he joined up. Yeah, because he was 15 when he was killed, and that was in February of uh, 1916. Right. So, almost certainly he was 14 when he joined that. And the the students that are coming on our trip are 14 and 15, so that's... Yeah, well, there you go. Yeah, that certainly <laughs> could help, help that there hit home to them. Right, well, I mean, that was unbelievably interesting, even just selfishly, whether we were recording or not. I thoroughly enjoyed that. <laughs> Um, and thank you, thank you so much. First of all, for writing the book, then for volunteering to help without being asked, uh, and then coming on and, and being recorded on the podcast so that the students, probably for, for many years to come, can can listen to uh, what you've got to say about the First World War and how, how it affected Harrogate uh, and the soldiers yeah. that, that joined there. I thoroughly enjoyed it myself because it's uh, uh, one of my favourite subjects. Um, mm. I just love talking about it. I'm only sorry that I can't remember that much of it anymore. <laughs> I finished the book three years ago. Oh, well, I think you've remembered a lot, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, right. Well, thank you so much, and and uh, you'll you'll if you. You'll see-